Welcome to K-Explorer's Emerging Research. We're focusing on research that's happening right now. It's science so fresh, you haven't even heard about it yet. I'm Stacy Cochran. And I'm Kim Winslow from the Knowledge Exchange. The average distance your food travels from a farm to your table is 1,500 miles. Buying local is an easy way to reduce energy usage, support local farms, and ensure your produce is freshly picked. It's a feel-good cause, but what are the true costs and benefits for farmers and the community? Capturing that dollar value could be a vital tool for decision makers. Today, we're talking with agricultural food systems economist, Dr. Zoe Plakius, an assistant professor in the Department of Agricultural, Environmental, and Development Economics in the College of Food, Agricultural, and Environmental Sciences. Zoe recently published a paper looking at the cost-benefit analysis of the farm-to-school program at Ohio State. She wanted to evaluate the policies around the program to see if the investment in local produce makes sense financially. But it's her emerging research that we really want to talk about today. Welcome, Zoe. Thank you so much for joining us on our new series. Thank you for having me. We like to start off with a get-to-know-you question, a quick introduction, if you will. This is just off the cuff. So do you like music? I do like music. All right. What song could you listen to all day long on repeat? (laughs) It's a tough one. Yeah, that's nice. That's a hard one. That's really tough. Oh, gosh. So many good choices. Okay. Well, this is actually going to relate a little to my local food uh, uh, interests. And it's the Portlandia theme song. Yes. And actually, and the reason it relates to local food is because there's this really famous chicken scene that gets played a lot in the context of talking about local food. And there is this couple that's sitting at a (laughs) restaurant and they're like, I want to know where my chicken comes from. And they go on this adventure to kind of make sure that the chicken that they're eating has had a good, good life. And it's kind of this extreme example of... (laughs) Being a local foodie. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, That's they, want, they want to know his name. They want to go see where he, they ended up living at this farm. <laughs> it is hilarious. I love that. Oh, oh my, my gosh, gosh, that's a really good one. That's, a, that's definitely a good one. Well, and so Zoe, you know, speaking of local food, I know you have quite a few projects going on right now. Uh, But before we really dive into those, I think we need to start with some of the basics. Can you explain cost benefit analysis? Because I know that's going to be a term that comes up quite a bit. Yes, I need help. Please explain it to me like I'm five. Absolutely. So cost benefit analysis is actually relatively simple. It's what you would think it is just from hearing it. And we've all done it in some way in our regular lives, right? We say, okay, there's this thing that I'm considering doing. What are the costs to me? What kind of time would it take? What money would it take? What resources would I have to use? So it's not just money, but also time, for example, as a resource. And then what kinds of benefits would it would it give me? Would it make me happier? Would it make me wealthier? Would it impact me in, in some in some other way, right? And so essentially that's the idea of cost-benefit analysis is to do that a little bit more rigorously than we would if we were just making those kind of everyday decisions using that framework. But it's the same sure. idea, it's saying, okay, let's think about all the benefits. And when I talk about benefits, I'm not just talking about 
Um, again, monetary benefits, I'm talking about things like how does this impact the environment? Does this provide some kind of beneficial environmental uh, service? Say, uh, does it uh, provide cleaner water? Or conversely, does it provide less clean water, right? And so how do those decisions that we, we make have those the impacts? And then what are the resources that we use to then engage in whatever that, that project or policy might be? So cost-benefit analysis is a way of systematically going through that process of cataloging all the costs and benefits and then putting them all into a common unit, which is dollar terms. And so if I um, am looking at doing something where I have to spend money now, but I don't get a benefit for a year, I have to factor in the fact that I don't get that benefit for a year, right? And I would rather have it now. I would rather have everything now, right? Sure. We tend to want exactly. things now. And so we have to factor in that timing as well. And the fact that usually when we invest in things, not everything falls all one exact time period. So that's the essential idea of cost-benefit analysis. No, that's helpful. And I, you know, when you're describing that, I'm getting this visualization of, you know, that plus and minus, you know, the pro and con list uh, that people oftentimes write out when they're trying to make a decision, but it's also tied to the dollar amount that would be associated with those uh, pros and cons as well. And so with that in mind, you know, let's dive into some of the research that you are tackling right now. Can you tell us a little bit about the emerging research you have going on with the University of Missouri? So what we're doing in Missouri and in Ohio, so we're looking at, at both states, the goal here is to look at how uh, local communities did respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and how they can respond to future emergencies. And so we're really interested in working again at that community level and thinking about what are the different avenues, the different policies, programs, interventions that communities actually have the power to implement on their community scale with the resources that they have and what can they do to respond to and be resilient to any kind of disaster and disruption? And within that, the way that this all relates back to cost-benefit analysis is that I'm really interested in measuring the costs and benefits of the different types of investments and interventions um, that could be used to enhance this resilience and respond to future disasters and disruptions trying to incorporate some of these community impacts that we think are really important in a variety of different kinds of local food system investments, measuring and monetizing those so that they can be included in our quantitative cost-benefit analyses. Right. And so I think you mentioned when we talked before this podcast that this was a new tool that you were using, a new way of quantifying this information. Yeah. You know, the way that a lot of cost-benefit analyses approach some of these community impacts right now is to say, hey, they're important, but we're not going to monetize them. And so what's important to me is to say, let's see if we can find ways to better include some of these community impacts that we say are hard to measure in that headline result so that those can be used. And then ultimately, local decision makers, state decision makers, folks at a variety of levels in the food system can be able to integrate that into their quantitative analysis and their decision-making. 
One of the neat things that I've been noting about your work, Zoe, is that so many of the pieces that you're incorporating in this cost-benefit analysis, as you were mentioning, are pieces that haven't been incorporated in the past. We've done this. We've done this non-market valuation for all of these environmental amenities. Why can't we do it for other things too? Why can't we build on all of that great research, use some of those same techniques to look at other things that don't have markets and to then look at estimating the impacts of those and monetizing those and incorporating them as well. Yeah, I love it. I think that's really neat and powerful as a tool to use since we've seen it work so well in the past. It's a little less scary for people to use now in their own environments for some of these really important pieces that now we can add some value for, like you had said, decision makers and, you know, those important people that need to now bring value to these important pieces of the community. So your research is different than what people might typically think of as research in the field, in the lab. What does a day in your life researching look like? Or maybe a week? Do we have to extend it a little bit? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if a day is representative. Let's see. I spend a lot of time on the computer, probably more time than I would wish. I think I'm not alone in that in the world <laughs> at this point in time. Unfortunately. Right. <laughs> So a lot of what I do is analyzing data. First, I have to collect those data, and that can take a variety of forms. So sometimes collecting data can mean that I get to go outside and talk to people, right? Sometimes oh it means that I'm, I'm requesting data from people who've already collected it. I mean, obviously, I don't want to expend extra resources collecting data if somebody else has already collected the data that I need and want. For example, some of my local foods work, right? I requested some data um, and it was graciously provided by Ohio State Dining Services. They provided some uh, invoice data, for example. Um, and uh, we put, you know, we always, for requesting data, put protections in place um, to ensure that the data is, are being used appropriately. Um, and everybody has that kind of guarantee. And then, um, then I'm spending time um, developing kind of uh, models. So writing out what is it that I think is happening, developing hypotheses. So lots of just kind of brainstorming writing and then working in uh, computer programs that allow you to do statistical kind of analyses um, and trying to take the models that I've kind of been thinking about and um, see, you know, uh, either add things up in the cost of in the case of cost benefit analysis or do some other type of statistical or econometric analysis and econometrics is just statistics for economics we just like to call it something different so <laughs> no i love it i really do think that um sometimes people underestimate that step 1 of actually getting your hands on the data because i know that it can be an exhausting you know piece of work to try and get all that data in hand and i'm so excited that um zia ahmed was one of the people that you were able to connect with on campus to get data from dining services he, i know he's been such a great partner for cfaas so that's great zoe one of the other questions that i have with regards to cost benefit analysis is this tool seems like one that uh, so to give some context, we work quite a bit with extension educators and decision makers throughout the area. It seems like a tool that would be super helpful for that audience. Uh, do you see that as well? Is that a is that a tool that could be employed um, by folks in extension, by decision makers themselves, or is this a tool that really needs to be 
uh, put in place by uh, economists like yourself? That's a great question. I would like to be able to provide an easy yes to your first question about, about this being employed by extension. I think one of the things that I find in my recent paper that I published on local sourcing by Ohio State University is that cost-benefit analysis isn't really yet an accessible tool for a lot of decision makers. We see that tools such as economic impact analysis tools like Implan, which use an input-output analysis framework, that those are used more frequently, and I think it's because they're more accessible. Um, that tool is useful and can answer a certain set of questions. Uh, Cost-benefit analysis can answer a different set of questions. So cost-benefit analysis asks this question of, should we, ask and answers this question of, should we do this, uh, based on this idea that you want to do things that yield the greatest benefit to society. Now, folks sure. might argue with the way economists define, define that, and I'd be happy to chat more about that and have some thoughts about that myself. It's a whole much longer podcast. But right. <laughs> um, ultimately, it's still a useful tool. And ideally, what I'd like to be able to do is think about ways that we can more practically put it in the hands of people who will use cost-benefit analyses. Yeah, because I could see it being pretty powerful. I just didn't know, like you had said, you know, there's implant, there are a, a variety of neat technologies out there that make so many of these more accessible. One of the challenges that we, in general, we have with extension, so not thinking about the work that extension does to support others and just providing tools to others, but rather evaluating extension programming in and of itself the challenge sure. we have is that it can be difficult to really estimate what those impacts are, right? If you have a certain number of interactions with a stakeholder in your county or in the state, what does that mean? What does that translate to? Mm -hmm. Those relationships that you build with people in your county or in whatever area you kind of are responsible for, for servicing, how do you quantify that? And can we actually look at some of our own programs within CFAS and say, yeah, this is a really, you know, this uh, yields net benefits, but this other one, maybe it doesn't. I mean, that's a tough thing with cost-benefit analysis. You might right. have some things that you've invested a lot in that you're like, wow, this doesn't really, this isn't really telling us what we'd hope to hear. Because we have to be responsible with our money. And we have to say that we can put our money towards programs toward, that are helping the community that are advancing our society. So, I, I mean, we all have budgets. I know. I understand. Which... That actually makes me think of something. So the other emerging research that you have going on uh, comes back to that dining services question. You were looking at the cost-benefit analysis of local food here uh, in the Ohio State community. And I was really interested to see the outcome. Uh, it looked like overall there was some negative findings with the cost-benefit analysis, uh, which was completely surprising because that's such a feel good and, you know, overall something that the community really gets behind. In that paper, just to narrow it down a little bit, what I was looking at was the costs and benefits of Ohio State Dining Services switching from their normal sourcing of whole sweet potatoes to local sourcing. So previously they were sourcing through very standard supply chain, went through a couple of distributors and the sweet potatoes themselves were produced in North Carolina. Through, you know, as part of 
guiding services efforts to source more locally, which I had nothing to do with. They were already involved in this. So in the course of that, I did what I have already described in terms of this cost-benefit analysis process and tried to add up all of the various costs and benefits that occurred from this local sourcing. As part of that, one of the other things that I did is I tried to incorporate the fact that there's uncertainty, that we're not sure about all of the various costs and benefits. And so what that meant is I used a process where I actually run the numbers a bunch of times, 10,000 times in fact, and I get the distribution of net benefit. So I found that in more than 50% of those 10,000 scenarios, the net benefits of local sourcing were negative. And so that's what you're referring to, Kim, right, is that kind of headline result. Now, one thing I want to say about that is that that didn't include environmental impacts or community impacts. And so one of the things that I think is really important is to recognize that a lot of the things that give us the warm fuzzies about local foods are not actually some of the things that I could incorporate. And that's where I got this idea for this next vein of research that I'm trying to start that we talked about with Missouri and Ohio of saying, gosh, we can't provide these numbers that are actually comprehensive and tell us the whole story. Is there a way that I can do that better? And I recognize that that was a whole new project. Absolutely. I couldn't do it in the context of that one project. This is how research works, right? Every project leads to more questions than it answers. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so that was... That was my kind of result. I think what this also tells us is something that other literature more recently has been saying too, which is that local food is not some panacea, right? We have to look carefully at what we're trying to do and what our goals are and be very intentional about the various uh, various practices, policies, interventions, instruments we use to achieve those goals, and then also be very careful about evaluating them. I want to help provide tools so that people know, is this something that I want to do? Is this something that aligns with my values if I do it or not? So if your intention in a farmer's market is to say, all right, let's introduce people to farmers so they can talk to them at these farmer's markets. They can get to understand who these farmers are, what they're going through, how they produce the food so that people understand what actually goes into food production. But what is then that value of getting to know those farmers and understanding where your food comes from? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's that's a really important part of it. And this is very early stage research right now. So we haven't actually finalized what the specific research questions are. But part of what I'm really excited about with this research is that we'll be working with communities of practice in both Ohio and Missouri. So groups of community members and people who are involved in the food system. And what's important about that is we can actually form the questions with them together to kind of think about what are the relevant things to even measure right? What is the right research question to ask? And right. are there ways that people conceptualize valuing them, right? Like I might think about different numbers of people in a setting or different numbers of events. You might think about education, different levels of education. Are there ways that we can start to parse this out that will be 
that will be salient, that will be relevant and understandable to community members. The kind of big question for me is how do we incorporate these community benefits into quantitative measures? How much is this worth? What is this, you know, what is the actual value of a farmer's market or what is the actual value? Sure. And it's, it sounds like you're very much in the methods development too. I mean, because this is such a new type of application of a tool, uh, it's it's still uh, it's still so murky in terms of really understanding how to apply it in this new realm and and put like you had said, put numbers to it. And what are those numbers, and where do you get them? Yes, yes, absolutely. Ultimately. My interest in cost-benefit analysis in this project is about understanding the benefits and costs of various food system investments that are targeted to build resiliency, right? And so that has to do with what can be invested at the community level, but also I hope will inform decisions at the state level in both states or at higher levels related to some of these types of investments. And so there's a couple of different ways that you can approach, you know, thinking about better informing those decisions. One is to give people a more accurate number, right? And that's really what I've been talking about. But another piece I want to mention is that the, the other piece is trying to reduce the quantitative bias and say, hey, that there's this number, but it doesn't mean everything. Here's some other important things to note. And that's imp- that could be important not only in the community context, but also in thinking about the distribution of benefits, which cost-benefit analysis doesn't say anything about. Could be thinking about who specifically uh, is impacted, you know, uh, important ideas about, about food justice and about uh, justice and equity across communities. And so one thing that could happen from this project, and it's possible, and I'm working with sociologists, so they might pull me in this direction too, is that we say, we don't think that there's a way to quantify this at all. I mean, after really digging in, Mm -hmm. but we're going to propose a framework for better decision-making that incorporates qualitative analysis and these qualitative things more into quantitative, this kind of quantitative decision making. So kind of a mixed a mixed methods approach. Now, it's not like I'm the first person to have this idea. There's lots of uh, kind of models out there. But I think what we don't see is we don't see that incorporated as much into some of the government decision making is some of that qualitative analysis. And we hear, you know, I'll hear sociologist friends talk about it. I'm not, you know, a lot of economists are very focused on the quantitative piece, but I love to do that mixed methods with qualitative researchers. So stuff that's not numbers, um, but provides important context for the research. It's very cool. Hey, Kim. Hey, it's Stacey. time for our <laughs> it's it's time for our dream big segment talking about collaboration. Uh, Zoe, since you like to use this mixed methodology, uh, mixed methods, if you had unlimited resources, grants, time, funding, just like sky's the limit, what big question? would you research? Well, I think that the big question for me is what does the future of the food system look like? And how can we build a food system that is fairer, more environmentally sustainable, uh, 
where folks are healthier, where people at every level of the system, at every point in the system, feel valued and have good jobs and are able to support their families. And right. so that's huge. That's a huge question. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> People have been working on it for that's a like while. I, I question. Think I've heard. Yeah. So that's my big, that's my big question. But I, one thing that is key to me within that is that I think we can get siloed. Not only can we get siloed in our particular disciplines, but we can exactly. also get siloed in thinking about different aspects of the system. So I do work on local food systems and there's a whole group of people that just focus on local food systems. But of course, local food systems are absolutely fully integrated in a lot of ways with our right. with our global food system, right? Because, you know, anywhere you go, any food produced around there is local to that place. So all sure. food is both local food and potentially global food, right? And so thinking about those separately is not, I think, the most effective way to think about the best future food system. Like, I want the best ideas from everybody, right? Yes. And I think the best ideas from everybody is how we um, we move forward to to build a, a, a better food system. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think that's a valiant goal. I give you, you know, all the hope in the world and I give you so much, you know, excitement, uh, you know, because thinking about bringing those different groups of people together. I think can have a beautiful impact. Which leads to the other question for the Dream Big segment. Who is your dream team of researchers to attack that question, try to figure out the answer? I mean, anybody. This is hard. <laughs> Everybody. I mean, the people that are nice, like I don't want to work with mean people and they're out there. But <laughs> what's amazing about working at Ohio State is I already feel like I'm working with amazing people. So working with Shoshana Inwood in the School of Environment and Natural Resources, Jill Clark mm -hmm. in the Glenn College of Public Affairs, Jennifer Garner in the Glenn College of Public Affairs and the College of Medicine, Andrew Hanks in the College of Human Ecology. Like those are just a few of my collaborators on the Ohio State campus. And Wonderful. so just working with them is amazing. They're part of my dream team. I, I, already, I already work with amazing people. I just want to keep working with them. Time is more That's of a constraint than great people. Right. right. I know. Yeah. So if we can find someone who can add some hours to the day, yes. then yeah. that would be super helpful. I hope you have somebody else on a podcast that that is their thing that they're working on because that would be yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. The 36 hour work day. Actually, wait no, a second. That sounds awful. <laughs> can I just <laughs> That's not going to work. Yeah, wait, no. hold on. Never mind. <laughs> what is the time frame for your emerging research? When do you think that you will have results that you would like to share with the world? I would guess about three to four years from now, we have a grant proposal into the USDA, and that is being reviewed this year. And then once the project gets started, assuming it's funded, we would then have to get all of these different balls rolling, build the communities of practice. The cost-benefit analysis piece that I would be most involved in would come a little later in the project once those communities had been formed and done some initial work together. And so that's kind of the timeline that we're on. If the USDA decides not to fund this work, we will likely look for another funding source to do the same project. So it might push it out a little further. 
Long term, how will this work impact local communities? My hope for this work is that it allows local communities to make informed decisions that are in alignment with their goals and make good use of what are generally scarce resources and scarce budgets. Yep, that's valid. Especially once with everything that happened with the pandemic and the worries about local funding, um, we we need to be uh, budget friendly, cost penny wise, all of that. Oh, Zoe, this has been so nice. It's been such a joy talking to you. I really love learning about the work that you're up to, especially because I have a soft spot for this idea of putting um, monetary value to the neat programs and things that go on that oftentimes don't get that limelight because they then are unfortunately undervalued and then underfunded. So I love that you're adding that piece of the puzzle into a tool that's already technically in existence. You're just adding a little flair so that it can be used on a wider scale. Uh, So thank you so much for coming on this podcast and talking to us about your work in a way that makes it so much more accessible for the rest of us. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure to chat with Kim and Stacey. Great. Thank you so much, Zoe. Good luck to you and your team. And we look forward to hearing your results. Be great. Want to explore more fresh research from the College of Food, Agricultural and Environmental Sciences? Visit kx.osu.edu. And thanks for listening to KX Explores Emerging Research.